we live in a world where everything happens fast. It's a culture of immediacy. People don't really wait to watch Match of the Day anymore, just like people don't really wait to watch their favourite episode of their one drama once a week. Maybe you're sat there thinking, ah, well, what about the bake-off? The bake-off I wait to watch once a week. But, but it's, everything's immediate, isn't it? It's now, now, now. It's Netflix immediately. It's catch-up immediately. It's live streams immediately. And even you bake-off watchers, in that little break, when the adverts come, what do you do? You don't wait to speak to your friends anymore. It's immediately on the WhatsApp group to go, this person's winning the bake-off. Immediately, you talk to other people. It's immediate. We live in a world of immediacy. We scroll up on social media because something must have happened since the last time I scrolled up five seconds ago. We don't wait for our next trip into town to look at something in the supermarket or in the shops. We watch reviews online, we find the best price and we order it and it arrives at the house the next day. It's immediate. On our way to Longfields today, Dan and I drove in convoy Uh, I drove the van, Dan in his car behind, and uh, we got to about five doors away from the school on Longfields, and uh, in the middle of the road, blocking the way, was uh, an elderly man with a big remote control in his hand. His wife was stood on the driveway um, doing some directing, and blocking the whole road was the biggest caravan you could imagine being parked on Longfields. Now, I uh, sat in the van, not particularly late, not particularly in a hurry, but assessing the situation quite quickly, looked at this elderly gentleman with a big remote control, carefully trying to fit this huge caravan onto his driveway. I looked across to the uh, lady who was trying to help him squeeze this uh, caravan onto the driveway as well, And instead of waiting one moment longer, I drove round the block to get the last 10 yards to Longfield School. As I drove uh, and approached the gates, I saw that the caravan had been successfully manoeuvred out the way, and uh, Dan, who had waited, was just in the same place. But it just felt like the most logical choice for me in that moment to go, I'm not waiting here, I'm going. I've got to take matters into my own hands and deal with this immediately. I'm convinced the only reason Dan didn't was he wanted to watch uh, a remote control caravan being manoeuvred around. But it was so natural for me because we live in a culture of immediacy. There's lots of good things to be celebrated about our culture where, where we can get everything quickly. But let's see how today's passage gives us something of a call to slow down. And look, as we join verse 1, it's a bit of a bridging verse because it looks back to the promises at the end of chapter 4 that we saw last week and it looks forward to the conquest to come as God's people enter the land. Remember the people of Israel that we've been following the last few weeks? They've just been marched through the River Jordan. It had been dried up. God had stopped the flow so they could walk right through the middle. God has shown his mighty power. And look back to the end of chapter 4. He did this 
so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And now look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Now when all the Amorite kings went west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts <coughs> melted in fear and they, had, they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Do you see, exactly as God planned, the people know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. The Amorites were the, the tribal groups that inhabited the hill countries. The Canaanites were the traders on the plain. They were going to be pretty fierce competitors against the people of Israel. But both groups have heard about what happened at the Jordan. And both groups are terrified. And you read that and you think of the story and you think of all the waiting of God's people getting into the promised land, and you think, perfect! Doesn't this sound like the perfect time to strike? That's what you expect, isn't it? That's got to be up there in the most basic war commands, attack from a position of strength, whenever you get a taste of weakness. They've waited all this time to enter the promised land. God's prepared the way. He's opened the Jordan, softened the enemies. Surely they're going to press straight on through. But look at the shock of verse 2. Immediate invasion is not the first thing on God's agenda because for God, something is clearly more important for him to deal with first. God wants his people to slow down. He wants them to pause to do two things before they invade Jericho. We see a people marked by the, their dependence on God's faithfulness. Have a look at verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Harloth. If you're anything like me, your first response to reading that or hearing that read just a minute ago. Ah, oh, why here? Why now? This is the shock of the passage, isn't it? Look, if you're in the room this afternoon and unfamiliar with what circumcision is, it's simply the cutting off of part of the foreskin of the male penis. And you go, what? Why here? Why now, God? Clearly, if you thought the same, verse 4 reassures us that's a pretty reasonable thing to ask. It begins to answer the question. It offers some reasoning. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. See, a generation of people, of men born in the wilderness, they'd not been circumcised. And this was clearly an issue. Not so much because of the actual circumcision, but what this sign was. It was given as a sign of commitment to the covenant Lord. And so the people 
wandering in the desert, the uncircumcised men, it was a picture of the fact that they had a non-committal relationship with the, with the covenant Lord. Look at verse 6. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. See, the generation that left Egypt were circumcised, but quickly they didn't trust God. And so God wouldn't show them the land in their generation. See, the sad reality was that the mark of dependence on God's faithfulness didn't actually show itself as their dependence, their trust in a faithful God. Actually, in reality, they were no less dependent on a faithful God. They still depended completely on all that he gave to them. They were still completely dependent on him for food every day. That's the picture of manna in the wilderness. So you see, circumcision in and of itself doesn't make a massive difference. What matters is actually what it's marking. So let's have a look just quickly back to what circumcision means, why it was given. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 17, verse 10 and 11. Just flip back there for a moment. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision was a sign that you were part of Abraham's people. It was saying, I'm set apart for God. God's promises to me and my people. I'm a benefactor of God's promise. I depend on God's faithfulness. I'm actively trusting God. God's promises to his people at that time were completely dependent on his commitment to his people. Do you notice how the people's unfaithfulness as they wandered in the wilderness, it doesn't change God's promise. They will still enter the land, but it changes their experience. That promise is delayed as they are to wander in the wilderness. Circumcision is a mark of faith in a faithful God. And so the point is, God wants his people to be a people that are marked out by their dependence on God's faithfulness. Look at verse 7. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Picture the scene there as the men come in. They're, they're so ready. They're so sure. You prepare an army probably thinking about going into the promised land. All their, their one battle away has been going so well. God's prepared them. It looks like the most brilliant time to invade as the city that they want to go to is so close. But instead, they pause and they circumcise. Without going into details, 
at eight days old, which is when circumcision would have been done, that's a pretty straightforward procedure, one that you recover from quickly. But these now are fully grown men, men about to go into battle. This is a costly thing for these men to do. It's not straightforward. Look at verse 8. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. They literally had to wait and heal. Can you imagine these strong men thinking about going into battle completely, everything completely taken away from them. In those days, waiting desperately to heal up quick. I can imagine that they wouldn't have felt very brave, strong, like anything of that battle would be in their grasp or in their hands. See, at a time of of maybe most military might, they made their army most vulnerable. At that moment, maybe the the Israelite army could have got carried away with adrenaline of their crossing the Jordan to think, ah, let's just go for it. We can do this. Look where we've come. We're strong. Look at the the men of the hills and um, and the east of the Mediterranean scared of us. Let's just crack on and go for it. But God is way more interested in their hearts than their actions. God is more interested in faithfulness than fruitfulness. That's to say, he's more interested in his people recognising their complete and utter need for their faithful God and responding to him than being able to achieve loads of great things for him. Maybe you're in the room this afternoon and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. It's really brilliant to have you with us. And you see here as we read these words, see what it means to be one of God's people? Completely dependent on God and his promises. That's what a Christian is. Means to recognise our desperate need for God to step into our world and deliver us. And to be marked out as someone who is simply trusting in him. The amazing truth is that when we trust in Jesus, God's ultimate deliverance, the way in which God ultimately brings about rescue, we're marked as God's people. Listen to what Colossians says, because it's a different mark. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Do you see, in Jesus, when we trust in him, God's new covenant promise, we're totally transformed. We're given a new heart. We're marked out as people that are in Jesus. 
I wonder if you, if you are a Christian in the room, maybe you've been a Christian for some time. Are you in danger of forgetting that, that all this means is that you're completely dependent on God's faithfulness? Do you wake up and prioritise productivity over promises? Maybe your default is to go, oh, well, being a Christian means I have to do Bible reading. I have to go to church. I have to give money. I have to serve people. Those things, they're great things. But they're just a mark. They're a mark of being in Jesus. They're a mark that we so desperately cling to what Jesus has already done. We depend on the fact that he will save a people who time and time and time again fail to do enough. No matter what great things God is doing, even in your own life, using you like the people of Israel here, will you slow down and remember how you got here? You are here, Christian, completely by God's faithfulness. I wonder, will you wake up each morning and demonstrate your dependence on a faithful God? Not on your own ability to be productive for him. All that the people do is stop and remind themselves of God's promises and commit themselves to him. That's what they do is they perform this circumcision it's a sign of their commitment to God who is faithful second we see a people enjoying their faithful God no doubt um, you'll know the stories of the 1914 Christmas truce in the midst of wartime English and German troops called Truce on Christmas Day. Here's an excerpt from a poem by Carol Ann Duffy that paints the picture. All night long, all night along the Western Front they sang, the enemies, carols, hymns, folk songs, anthems in German, English, French, each battalion quired in its grim trench. So Christmas dawned, wrapped in mist, to open itself and offer the day like a gift for Harry, Hugo, Herman, Henry, Heinz, with whistles, waves, cheers, shouts, laughs. Fro Wynacton, Tommy. Merry Christmas, Fritz. A young Berliner brandishing schnapps was the first from his ditch to climb. A Shropshire lad ran at him like a rhyme. Then it was up and over every man to shake the hand of a foe as a friend or slap his back like a brother would, exchanging gifts of biscuits, tea, McConaughey stew, tickler's jam for cognac, sausages, cigars, beer, sauerkraut, or chase six hares who jumped from a cabbage patch or find a ball and make of a battleground a football pitch. And you hear that? And maybe you've pictured the scene before and it's just bizarre, isn't it? A bizarre picture of party time in the midst of war. 
And it doesn't really make sense, except for complete and blissful escapism. A distraction technique, away from reality, that's the only way it could work. But do you see what's happening here in our passage, as the people of Israel seem to wine and dine on the eve of the biggest battle the people could ever imagine? It's not a distraction technique. It's not blissful escapism. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. The reproach of Egypt is that they'd become Egyptian slaves and they kept something of their reputation, that reputation. They kept something of the custom They kept something of that identity, but now God's taking that away. Verse 10, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Do you see the same faithful God that brought them out of Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb has brought them into this land, just as he's promised. See, they don't need to escape the situation. But knowing what they know about God, they can genuinely enjoy him. Because they know he is faithful. They're celebrating what God is like. Look at verse 11. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. See, that's just another little reminder of the Lord's faithfulness. Do you see the repeated language? They ate from the land. They ate from the land. They ate from the land. They are enjoying the faithful God. God's promise has been fulfilled. It's no longer manna time. The days of wilderness wandering are over. They may not have yet defeated their enemies. They may not have yet gone into the the city. They may not have yet been ultimately delivered. And yet, they celebrate their faithful God. Because they know with absolute certainty what he is like. And you see for us, God has revealed his ultimate rescue in the Lord Jesus. We know exactly what he is like. We know that his deliverance is absolutely secure. He's shown us the full picture in Jesus. If we trust in his death and resurrection, we have been saved. We've been given a new heart. We've been raised to life with Jesus. And we will be delivered to ultimate rest with him. So, slow down. Slow down, God's people. Don't be consumed by what you are doing now, what you're going to do tomorrow, your next battle around the corner. Enjoy God's faithfulness. Sometimes we don't want to slow down. 
and enjoy God's faithfulness. Things are going well, we're on a roll, life's great, we're successful, we think we've got it. We think we're in control, preoccupied with the pleasures of life. That we're in danger of completely forgetting our utter dependence on God. Will you slow down and enjoy his faithfulness? Even in the midst of whatever's clouding your current circumstances, whatever you're worried about in the back of your mind, tomorrow, a week's time, will you slow down and enjoy his faithfulness? Sometimes we're forced to slow down and we struggle to enjoy God. The circumstances feel overwhelming and we're in danger of forgetting that what we experience in the day-to-day, it doesn't threaten the ultimate victory. That's already been won by our faithful God. Jesus' victory is certain. But we try and speed up. We find a million and one things to do. Try and put things in our own control, find solutions to the problem. Will you slow down? And enjoy his faithfulness. God gives his people a call to slow down. Recognise what he's like and enjoy him. Will we do the same? Let me pray. Father, please would you help us. Help us to recognise you and your absolute control. Lord, help us to see you, our faithful God, and respond to you. Please would you help us to enjoy you and what you are like. Amen. Well, we're going to do that now. We're going to sing together and enjoy our faithful God. So let's stand and sing together.